Hey, what's up, man? We are back here in the palatial estates of my partner in law enforcement, Bill Cannon, for part two with uh, retired Lieutenant Jimmy Malloy. And uh, before we came back on the air, Bill started to give me a, a note that I should ask you about this story. Maybe you wanted to save it for later on, but I'm fascinated by that because so far what we've learned from you is that you're squared away. You're a martial artist, okay? You, uh, That's you a nice great. car. Right, he's, he's got the bullet. <laughs> he's got the leather jacket to go with. He rides motorcycles. But that you were also squared away on the job, right? Yeah. And uh, a great boss to have yeah. if... And, uh, you need a only, boss, right? You, you need yeah. a boss. But now Bill was telling me that there was a time where the job was actually after you for some reason. Yeah, well, I... When I say after right. you, I mean that you might have stepped on your dick. And for the civilians, what that means is something happened where you became, you got the spotlight on you. And you had to, uh, even though you were this great boss, for some reason the job uh, was coming after you? Yeah, well, it wasn't specifically the job itself. It kind of, it was maybe one chief in the job that was in what a position happened? of power. So I was in a 2-4 for four years from 2004, uh, 5 to Are we talking about when you were a cop? Or when no, you were I'm a squad, squad commander, detective squad commander. So I went from uh, the 2-4 to the 19th. And how I got to the 19th is uh, the chief at the time, Manhattan Detectives, uh, asked me. I've been, I've been in the 2-4 for four years. You know, we were having some success in the squad. And uh, Well, just so people know, there is a lot of movement as far as bosses in the squad, right? Absolutely. So if you have a problem with a boss in a detective squad, they always say, relax, they'll be gone soon. Right. They move around. So I was in the 2-4 for four years, and it was, the 19th is, uh, you know, in as far as Manhattan North goes, it's very... I don't want to say prestigious, but it's very politically oriented because it is the Upper East Side. There's a lot of uh, consulates there, uh, you know, international people. So things that happen... What is the 19th cover so the, far as the people 19th, that don't live in the city? Yeah, it covers from like 59th Street up to uh, uh, 96th Street and from the park to the river. Okay, from the park, from Central Park uh, East, right? Yeah, and then from... To, up to, to the water. To 96th Street. And then down to like 59th Street. So that's a very expensive neighborhood to live in. Absolutely. So and it, and there's a, a lot of wealth there. They say like the zip code, you know, one zero zero two one is like one of the wealthiest ones on in, on the, the planet. City, yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the planet. So right. there's a lot of influence there. So cases that happen there, it's like Central Park. You know, it's the windows of the world. You know, the eyes of the world are on it. You know, it gets uh, a lot of high profile interest. Uh, you might have a, you know, it could be. It doesn't even have to be a homicide. If you have a homicide in the 19th, it's going to get a lot of attention. You know, you might have a homicide in other commands that work, like the 2-4, the 7th, or the 9th. Well, doesn't, it, Jim, know. just the, the city always will say, they'll say, a homicide is treated the same way everywhere, and that's right. total nonsense. No, if no, there's I, a homicide in the 19th, there's like 50 detectives working on it right away, right? Right, yeah. So what, what happened in 2009, I was asked by the chief then of Manhattan, hey, you know, would you like to go over to the 19th? It's, you know, it's a prestigious, he thought it was like a, a step up. And I'm like, well, to be honest with you, the chief, uh, I'm kind of comfortable here in the, in the two, four, I know the perps, you know, I'm very familiar <laughs> with everybody. It's humming really well. He's like, Oh, okay, great. But no, when the no chief asks you a question like that, right. is he really asking you or is he basically telling you, I want to move you to the two, uh, to the 19th? Well, that's what happened. And I, and I said, listen, chief, I'll, I'll go wherever, wherever you need. And he goes, but, but if you're asking me, you know, I'd like to stay where I'm at. He said, Hey, no problem, Jimmy. I got it. A week later I was transferred to the 19th. <laughs> yeah. 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 No problem. I, yeah. I knew that was coming, so yeah. I went. And at the time, there was a, there was a they were having some issues with the uh, the command structure over there. There, there was a couple of sergeants uh, sergeant was running the squad for a while. It, it wasn't working out, I guess. So um, the head lieutenant that had been there had left and went to another unit. I, he may even have retired, and then eventually came back. 
Um, so it was. So they're sending you over to clean it up. I, I guess that was the ind- indicate implication. You know, I went. That's there. never a good thing right. for the boss when he gets there and his job is to clean it up because you're gonna have to do. You're gonna have to straighten some stuff out. Well, it, and it was a busy squad for you know amount of caseload. Like they do over four thousand cases a year. Or like grand larcenies and stuff. Well, mostly grand larcenies and burglaries were the big things over there. A lot of burglaries on the Upper East Side and a lot of grand larcenies. Um, and 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 you know it had its share of robberies. You know it bordered the uh, you know the two three at ninety sixth Street, and you had you had some issues over there. Um, a lot of bars, a lot of good yeah, restaurants, tons of bars, yeah. lots of that. And then you like I said, now you know something, and you would get that call. The call would come in from one PP. You know, hey, take a look at this. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. It could be an aggravated harassment. It could be something else. You send the detectives over to take sixty ones on you know because somebody's calling somebody that knew somebody. So that was part of it. So there was a little adjustment period of, I realized that going in, but um, it took some time and, and I was able to navigate it. You know, and the whole the whole bureau, the whole department is run on the Comstat basis. You know, and Comstat, I don't know if you guys have ever talked about that. It's just basically- yeah, we've talked about it a lot. You know, how the job has changed. And as a squad commander and a precinct commander, you're really under the gun of Comstat. Everything goes by it. The job runs by it. So- um, those kind of complaints that come in as 61s and you really have to stay on top of what is going on within that squad. So uh, what happened at that point, I got to the 19th and I was adjusting pretty well. That was in 2009. So um, the case that you, Bill was referring to was a, a grand larceny of a you know, wealthy socialite on the Upper East Side. And uh, she had some jewelry in a safe in her apartment and uh, it had gone missing. And uh, she made a report in... Was like, she on Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue? Yeah, I, the exact address. It was like you know, it was it was, it was one of these. They're all high end. Yeah, Fifth high Avenue, end, Seventy Second Street. Avenue, you know, Park it was Avenue. it was uh, you know very very wealthy East people. East End uh, Avenue. Yeah, you know the husband was a uh, you know a very uh, prominent lawyer. You know he had argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. He was uh, on the board of the New York Times. So he had, you know there was some influence there, um, and they traveled in those circles. But you know we took a sixty one. You know the, the detectives did a case on it. Um, you know, you have your 12 investigative steps, you know, those things that were laid out there to beat you down. And and you really had to, to certain cases. You're talking about Pulaski's? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that was actually invented that, I think. Well, yeah. And Pulaski picked up on it and really ran it out there. So what would happen on this particular case, it was a grand larceny. And like I said, because Comstat drives the world. And and in this world of the 19th, you'd have 4,000, 4,500 cases with you know, 15 detectives. There's no way you're going to drill down on every case and do 30 DD5s on every case. So you had to pick and choose what you're going to investigate. And that was something, the decision that I had made. And that, at a Comstat process, when you go and you're standing at that podium... They all get investigated, but who are yeah, you going to no, spend some time without with? a doubt. Like, you got to pick the low-hanging fruit and then the ones that, listen, this one isn't going anywhere. Okay, we're going to close that out, move on to the next one that we can do. Because you'd be at that focus at the podium at Comstat very adversarially, and they'd be like, hey, listen, they'd be telling you that. You can't work every case to this. you got to pick the ones you're going to work, and your responsibility is to get to the end of it. To know which ones to pick. Right. So as a squad commander, I put that out there. Okay, these are the kind of cases we were going to go with. So this was a grand larceny with jewelry missing from a safe. So the detective that catches the case, uh, this guy, Detective Hicks, good guy, you know, uh, solid worker, um, catches the case, goes out, does the interview like he's supposed to, gets pictures of the jewelry, puts out a little wanted poster, does his pawn shop canvases. But one of the key factors of it is, you know, the jewelry's in the safe. It's not closed all the time. She has women over, you know, her friends come over for, you know, tea and cards. And, you know, they have the maid come in and different people in and out of the apartment. So they wouldn't give us uh, this detective her friend's names. She didn't want her friends interviewed. 
Mm-hmm. So, okay, we're not, you know, we can't interview everybody could have access to it. You know, you're kind of shutting a door on us. So they basically referred us to the, you know, the doorman, whoever came in and signed in for the day kind of thing. So they were cooperating, but Probably not. got called up. Yeah, whatever. So, but, but we couldn't talk to everybody. So we put it out there. We did our porn shop canvases. Couldn't find, you know, the jewelry wasn't there. Um, Is there any chance she lost this jewelry? It's very possible. You know, one, one of the interviews was they weren't sure if initially if it was, uh, you know, at this location or maybe their home, you know, their vacation home, which they checked and it wasn't there either. So, you know, she's in paid off, you know, it's an insurance claim, but it's not the reason. I'm not implying she did this for insurance. She got it, you know, she got reimbursed re, uh, by the insurance. They didn't need the money. But at the end of the day, it's, it's 4,000 cases. You know, the case goes through the process. It's signed off on. But it's you closed. did more on that case than It's I closed, man. It's yeah. C4, you know, leads exhausted. We're out. You know, we couldn't interview everybody. Okay, we're not, we're done. So the case, that's in early 2010, right? That's like January 2010. So, it's the end of the year now. It's December. She's at some Christmas party, this uh, this woman. And, and of course, because there's a circle she runs in, Ray Kelly's there. And she approaches Ray Kelly, and, who she knows, and says, oh, hey, you know, I got robbed. And, oh, really? Well, how'd you get robbed? Well, tell me your story. So he makes a call to the chief of detectives at the time. And the chief of detectives is, you know, Detective, uh, you know, Chief Pulaski at the time. So he makes an inquiry. And when he yeah, inquires, he's very detailed on his inquiry. Uh, I get a call about the case, of course, and then I get a visit from, uh, he gets assigned to an inspections unit comes out, inspections takes the case. Uh, my guys are, everything we don't do is redone. And you can imagine the swell of, uh, of attention is getting now because even from the borough level, everybody's like, Hey, what's going on with this case? And mm-hmm. I'm like, listen, it's a C4, man. It was a C4, you know, eight months ago. Mm-hmm. You know, we went through it and I was confident and comfortable with the way the case went. And whenever I was called on it, I, you know, Professionally went through everything in detail. Say, this is what we did. This mm-hmm. is where it's at. But of course now, you know, it was, did you contact, you know, the New York State Geological Association oh, to see if the Julie was <laughs> broken down? Or like, no, of course we didn't do that. But that was a step that, we, okay, you got to do that. So there were all these things brought in um, that we had to do at the time. So again, this went on for several months. Mm-hmm. Uh, of this whole whole thing going on, but they basically also put your life through hell. Right? Oh, without a doubt. People because don't I, understand when they send chief of detectives inspections unit. First of all, right. well, those guys couldn't find the bad guy in Rikers Island. But they're coming and they're now. Going they're pulling over the case. your case, my case, yeah. my memo book. As a lieutenant, you have to carry, right. still keep a Ridiculous. memo book. So they're going over my memo book entries. And one of the things with these cases is just because they're coming in to look at that thing, they can't leave empty-handed. Right. So even if they're not finding anything wrong with this case, who didn't sign out at what time? Right, or what, right. Now they want to, who yeah. said it's okay for this guy to have a, a day off? And why is this it's White Sox syndrome? Yeah, it's, known it's, as. Uh, so it's meanwhile, a big pain in the right. ass. So meanwhile, we're running a case. We're still catching our, you know, 4,000 cases a year, our grand larcenies. We're going to Comstat. And then they created at that time grand larceny stat because Comstat was so effective. They started to have a separate Comstat just for grand larceny cases. So you were subject to Comstat, grand larceny stat. So we're going through that, and you know, I, I established a very good protocol on how I handle cases. And as I mentioned before, if a case came in, you know, I, I would never say, you know, and not to badmouth the, my my uh, you know colleagues at all, but you know, I would never say, hey, that detective, you know, he should have done this, he should have done that. I wouldn't do that. Like this would be the I've case. I've seen I've seen bosses do that. Throw, too, throw a guy under the bus. That's quite admirable. I would never do that. Because they don't let the detectives come up there and speak. No, they would never. And so that's not going to save you anyway. And it's never going to save you anyway if you did it. So, but you know, you want to defend yourself, and and it's such a, such an adversarial uh, position. You know, it gets to some people sometimes, and they want to fight back. And, it's like you're and, the coach of a team. Right. So I, I developed a strategy when I did that. I learned how to do it. It took a while. I, I did it for 10 years. So I was going to Comstat for 10 years. So 
I learned how to listen. Here's a case. I knew what they were pulling. They, why they're looking at it. You knew what the deficiencies were on it because any case can have a deficiency. Um, but I'd look at it and I would never let them steamroll me at Comstat. I wouldn't fight them, but I wouldn't like roll over and go, oh yeah, we should have done this. I'd say, yeah, this isn't done right. But I would look at similar cases that we did do exactly the right thing. So they would come at me hard. Like and a I, lawyer. And I'd say, okay, all right, you're right. We didn't do it here. But here's five cases we did the exact same thing on. So it was a bang, bang. And then they'd come again and I'd have another answer, bang, bang. And then they'd come again and I'd let it go. So I'd let them know that, listen, I... I do know what we're doing here, but I'm not going to fight you. You got your point across. I got mine. And that, over 10 years, developed a good reputation amongst the various DCOs and chiefs that were there, you know, because in, in my reign as a, you know, as a, um, a squad commander, there were a lot of DCOs. I think there were five different deputy commissioner operations. Do know, people crumble in Comstat? Like bosses? It, oh yeah, it, <laughs> it happened definitely. So that's that's the process you're under, and this case now is a grand larceny. So I had made a decision earlier about again. I had three supervisors, I have 15 detectives, and I'm gonna you know this is how we're gonna handle grand larceny cases because I'm answering them up. And this case is something it was handled exactly the way I wanted it handled. You know, it was closed out. You know, not that they weren't cooperative, but we, you know we we ran out of where we we're gonna go with this. But once it got that attention, it brought a spotlight on it again. You should have done this. And they went through all these investigative things the that we should have done. The geological thing? The geo that was just one that I thought was kind of comical. Yeah. And we had to do it. You know, So after all this is said and done, uh, it's getting ratcheted up. I'm getting calls from the chief of department's office. The, you know, the, 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 the number two in charge of the chief, chief of detectives is calling me up. His, the lieutenant running chief of D's is calling me every day for an update on the case. I end, up, I end up getting GO-15 over it. So I got to get a lawyer from... Uh, the Lieutenant's Association, I get called down to the Chief of D's Inspections Hall. What do they think? You're holding something back? I get GO-15. My sergeant, who obviously initially reviewed, you know, because he signed one of the DD-5s on the case, he got pulled down and the detective. Are they insinuating that you committed some type of crime be- so that you weren't investigating this properly? Improper so, investigation. That's right, what they're that's, implying. But all yeah. the steps right. were there originally. Any new steps that you they told you to do, you did. So what's the problem? So, again... You know, I, I don't know the underlying reasoning other than it was this initial contact with this woman, with the police commissioner who made the call to the chief of detectives who now launched this like investigation basically into it. So when the t- detective is interviewed um, and then sergeant, they weren't interviewed about what they did. They were interviewed about me. Basically, they were questioning them to say, he hey, was what's, the target. They I was the target. piece of his ass. Right. Yeah. Why, though? Because they sent them, I, I guess he wanted to go back perhaps to the police commissioner and say, oh, I found these deficiencies in this squad commander and this is what we're and doing. This is I, the, I don't know. This is the, the, uh, the chief of detectives uh, unit that went over there. The, the, those are the people? Inspections. Inspections, right. yeah. So inspections is going through the whole case. They're, and this is going on for like over a month now. This is going on again. So after I'm GO-15 and I'm brought in there, the first thing they do in the GO-15 you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good at answering questions, and I knew the case very well, but the first thing they had me read was from like a 1973 detective uh, manual that said the squad commander will review every case. That's the first thing they had me read into the record mm-hmm. after, you know, reading well, me my rights. Punk ass right? Foes, and as man. I said, there's 4,000 <laughs> cases in the, in, the, in the 19th, and with the new DD5 system, they can see if you, that case was ever reviewed. Mm. And of course, this is a case I didn't review. It was signed, you know, it went through the process. I review cases. We all whack up what you review. And uh, you're, the, you're the squad boss. So, so they got me. The first thing, open GO15, it was a gotcha. 
You oh. never reviewed this case from 1973. So after your like, sergeant closes the case out, you were supposed to go and read it well, over. Well, because that's what that manual said, that the squad yeah, gotcha. commanders could mm -hmm. review every was case. Was that 1973 thing still in effect? It was. Cause, did they, did cause, they blow the dust off it or what? Well, they were, they were, he was in the process of rewriting, as you know, with all yeah. the chief of detectives manual, yeah, the that. detective bureau uh, uh, manual. But that's what they opened up the GO-15. So it was the quick, okay, we got you. You never reviewed this case. I'm like, that's fine. So I went through the whole process. They're questioning me about it. And I guess they felt later on, I had heard that they felt I was a little indignant. And I wasn't. I was very professional in my responses, but I was cutting to the chase. I'm like, this is cases of C4. It's a grand larceny. This is why they did it. They follow my protocols because at Comstat, I'm questioning about the enormous amount, enormous amount of cases we have and how are you cutting through what you're doing to handle the ones that we can make you know have an effective you're making sense on. out of this right so i went through that and i i quoted the comp stats and things yeah, that so i did were any of these guys in inspections ever squad commanders no, no. yeah so they're little bitch boys right that work right. for the chief of d's that couldn't find a bad guy in rikers island and they're going after one of the best squad commanders in the city and they don't even know the questions to ask you right and then at the end, at the and they know they have to come up with something. Yes. And at the very end, one of the last questions, and I and I found later, I, I was told, I don't know if it's true, I was told by someone that what they found very indignant because when the, the <laughs> chief of detectives and they listened to the GO 15 tape, my response was, they said, well, Lieutenant, you know, is there anything else that should have been done on this case? And I said, well, this case was handled by Detective Hicks, you know, nine months ago, eight months ago, and it was closed C4, you know, following protocols that, you know, I established that I thought would be a you know, proper investigation. And now after it was reopened, I counted, I think, 12 people that I was aware of that was involved with the case after the reinvestigation, and it's still the C4. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, how I left it. They didn't like that. They didn't and I'm like, like that but that's what it was. Even after they all looked at it, it was still the C4. But Jim, let me just get a little, just to, to other politics. Didn't the chief of detectives order a chief to give you charges and specifications well, that, that, over this? Well, that, that followed after that. So what happened after... Uh, Again, now that c comes to me, and I find out uh, later on that uh, I'm going up to Comstat again. Now it's, it's Comstat cycle, my command's up, I'm presenting. I find out the night before, I get a phone call from a, a, a sergeant who works with the chief of department. And he says to me, he goes, listen, uh, they want to come after you tomorrow. He wants to, you know, they, the, the chief wants to come after you tomorrow and embarrass you because they're going to transfer you. So that was like what the reason. They were going to say I had a bad Comstat and oh. I was getting transferred. Uh, but apparently at that time, Esposito decided, uh, no, you're not going to do that. You know, basically the chief, you're not, you're not going to do it. Again, this is third hand. I don't know if this conversation ever happened, but I do believe the guy who worked there. And I went to Comstat. I presented and it was a normal Comstat. And then the next day uh, I get a call from somebody I knew in uh, personnel that saw a transfer to come down. Like, hey, you're getting transferred to the seventh squad. I said, no, I, I, he goes, I didn't see it come in. I just see it coming out. How's it? Usually it comes through the front door. They walked it through to be transferred to the seven squad. And as I found out later, when I went down to the seven squad, uh, the borough commander, not the borough commander, the uh, detective borough commander, detective borough commander, uh, Emery Connell, uh, she reached out to me and said, listen, I was, they told me to give you an interim evaluation and, uh, you know, give you, rate you really poorly on it. And she refused to do it. You know, but, something I just think I had heard in, you can correct me if I'm wrong. She was really stand-up. No, absolutely. Actually, I heard the chief of detectives ordered her to do it, and she said, as long as I'm commanding officer of Manhattan North Detective Operations, no one will give Lieutenant Malloy a below-standard evaluation. As long as I'm commander. Right. And I heard, <laughs> I heard um, Pulaski kept repeating, our decisions have career 
ramifications. Right. And she just kept repeating, as long as I'm commander. And uh, she was great. I thought that was fantastic. No, and, you know? and, and, then and then another I, little weasel, the chief of Manhattan Detectives. He's still a chief in the Bronx now. I don't know if you want to mention nah, his name. Yeah, another chief unknown. Yeah, that yeah, was involved. He was, the, he was, the, was. He was the... Uh, still a weasel. The second in command of the Detective Bureau. But then I got to the 7th Precinct. And again, I got transferred down to the 7th. I guess they felt... You know, it was it was farther south or whatever. I didn't mind. I, you know, I wasn't disgruntled about it. I didn't want to leave the 19th. I kind of liked it there. I got used to the detectives. It was starting to work. Um, and I got to the 7th and I met, you know, Ronnie Haas was the uh, uh, commanding officer of the Manhattan South Detective Operations. And he guy. came down. Good very guy. good guy. He had worked in Manhattan North as a captain. So I knew him years earlier, obviously, responding to jobs and whatnot. So I had a good working relationship with him because he respected the type of work I did. Um and he, again, he came down and he said the same thing to me. He goes, listen, I was told, you know, give you an interim evaluation. He goes, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I just want you to know that. So it was, it meant a lot to me. That, oh, yeah, you know, that's great. That they stood you up know, for it. You know, just right? let me also bring something up. And I, I know you well. We work together. During the time this is going on, Jim Jim has some personal problems. You're going through a divorce, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So right, talk right about like the, the department ripping you to shreds while you're very vulnerable. You know, look, you know, with the suicide problem and all that stuff, they're ripping one of the best squad commanders to shreds over some yeah, I bullshit. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a huge problem. You yeah. know, what's funny is that you get these bosses that are doing really well in the command, and because they're doing such a great job there, they decide to move them to a troubled area or to fix something up somewhere else, and then they put them there. And the, you're the second boss that uh, I used to work for a, a really great... Uh, Sergeant Pat Montagno. Oh, yeah, Pat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. he was our boss in the 2-6. Everybody loved him. And then all of a sudden, he went somewhere else, and then the Comstat didn't work out, and then he had to go somewhere else and do Night Watch because it was punishment for where wherever right. he went after right. that because he was doing such a great job in the 2-6. I, I never understood that shit. It's just... It's just the politics. You know, of you're a, so you can't stupid. be a winner with Comstat. If they want a piece of you... And the other thing was... It's going to happen probably, eventually. Jim was a great squad commander. And because they soiled his name, his name became like, oh, no, that guy's trouble. You know. Meanwhile, he was everything he wanted with a squad commander. You but know? what happened after I got to the 7th, and there was two sergeants in the 7th. There wasn't a lieutenant there, and uh, I fit in very well with it. And I didn't get disgruntled. I didn't want to leave the 19th, but I got, listen, I didn't want to let it beat me down. You know, I, so many people in my position, you know, 10 years as a squad commander, 77 detective squads, I, I really only know of one, maybe two that left on their own terms. Of course, I had my 20 and at that point. I could have retired and said, ah, fuck mm. this, I'm leaving. But I didn't. I, I really liked to work. I liked working those cases sometimes, you know. It's almost like you got to get beat up a little bit along the way. And then this way, when you get <laughs> to a position of, of your own power, then you get to do the a little beating up. It's like a game that they play. Well, also, if you don't have a rabbi that outranks the guy who's beating you down. Mm -hmm. Like if someone, you knew someone that was right. above Pulaski, they could have said, back off. He's mm -hmm. a friend of mine. And he would have backed off. But you know what? Like I said, I I, it, I I survived it on a job. I didn't want to let it beat me. I thought about retiring. Then I said, oh, well, I'm not going to let them run me out. But then I look back over the years. I stayed another five years after that, mm -hmm. you know? So, and I stayed as a squad commander, still doing comp stat and gang stat and grand larceny stat and doing it, you know, for a long time. And, not that I like Comstat. I didn't like Comstat. People I mean, don't realize likes, the stress you know, of that either. No, that but is so stressful. Like I said, the formula that, that I, I figured out and I learned from a great squad commander. And when I took over the 2-4, this guy, John Frawley, was a sergeant running the squad. I remember. And great, great boss. And, a good yeah. bo and he knew his stuff. He still knows his stuff, but he knew his stuff. And I thought, you know, I go there as a lieutenant. 
yeah, it might be a problem. He's been running the squad for a year. Hey, as the lieutenant's coming in, you know, mm-hmm. I did a, had a cup of coffee and a rip. You know, I didn't, you know, I haven't been in the squad in a long time, mm-hmm. but I wanted to do the work. But we got along really well, and I learned a lot from him. And then it just took off. Great That's relationship. nice that you give him credit. Oh, without really, a doubt. Really nice. Absolutely. Great guy. And then he ended up going from there. He went to Warrants and then JTTF. That's the kind of guy he was, man. He was phenomenal. And now, you know, he retired as well. But again, I went to the 7th now. And whole nother world. Nobody cared what happened in the seventh. The seventh precinct is right under the Williamsburg Bridge, Lower East Side. Yep. You know, projects. That's where Joe Murray was. Hey. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you that's got. That's they sent him. You know, Houston Street between the seventh and ninth. That's like the Mason Dixon line. You have yeah. the Campos houses in, 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 the, in the ninth and the Wall houses in, in the seventh. And those, that's where all the problems are. A did lot of drink, shootings. Did you drink under the bridge with Joe Murray? <laughs> <laughs> with the local no, community. I, I, do have a, I do have a funny bridge story, though. Like one day I'm in the squad in the seventh with one day. Detective, it's me and one detective. One guy's got court, other guy's in six. So there's like a lieutenant and a detective. That's it. That's the squad, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're upstairs. We're riding around in the morning. We come back with a sandwich. We're having something to eat in a little lounge area. And it's just about to bite in our sandwich. And you know, the guy comes up, uniform from downstairs, and goes, Ah, oh, we got a jumper off the Williamsburg Bridge. Ah, okay. So we walk out. We don't get in the car. We got to walk under the bridge. It's like a half a block down the street. And as we're walking up, I'm walking with Detective Rob. He stops deaf, dead in his tracks as we walk up to the jumper with this car. He's like, Ah, oh, fuck. It's my car. It was his car, man. He had just bought this brand new like Toyota pickup truck, and the jumper went off and landed, landed on his, on his fucking car, oh, man. Shit. Dude, it was his car. Only in New York, right? You're oh, a detective. Shit. They jump. Only, only in New York yeah. would you tell, give advice <laughs> to the other guys in the squad. Don't park underneath the bridge because when they jump, jump off, they're yeah. gonna land on you your car. And a funny, the <laughs> funny part, but not funny for him. He had to go through his own insurance, uninsured motorists to get his car fixed. His car's out of service oh, for a while. Oh, God. <laughs> He How caught funny the case, you know. Where else could you go that somebody would tell you a bit of advice that don't park underneath the bridge? Why? Bird shit? No, no. They jump off the bridge and land on the car. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Seven oh, You can't make this stuff yeah. up. Yeah. So and it's amazing how, like... Did you go to the 9th, too? Yeah, and that was... Like, that, if you were no, a busy you boss in the 19th. Yeah. You had 4,000 cases. Right. Now they're putting in the 7th for punishment where nothing goes on, and he can read the paper and have a cup of coffee like a gentleman now every well, day. Well, not really, because when I got there, my nickname by the squad guys, this guy Gillespie, started a name, great detective. Uh, he, he, me, he started calling me Dexter. Because I got there when the first month I was there, there were like three homicides and four shootings. They got, Lou, you come down here, you lighten up all the perps on us? You know? oh, shit, so, yeah. Like, no, but it got busy, so it was great. That was my indoctrination to the seventh. It was very busy for a few months. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, this is this is great. But you didn't have the oversight because nobody gave a shit. No, we can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, I, I'm expecting 30 calls. And like, what? Nobody's Nothing. You, up you called the wheel, you sent it down to the chief of these. About jewelry cared, that they're man. not even sure where they left. It would have saved yeah, that was open. No, it and- was... And people walking in and out of that room all day, every day. Hey, we had another great case here, if I could, I could talk about the seventh. Like, those detectives, fabulous. Good teams. A lot of animosity. I don't say animosity, but a lot of competition between the teams, which was great. And there was one detective, this guy. I don't want to name him, but everybody that I talk about, I don't know who I'm talking about. Just a great character. Just tried the hardest, but, you know, you know, just wasn't that sharp as pencil out there. But he tried, man. You know, he got out there mm-hmm. and... One night, one of the detectives is uh, going on a canvas for a grand larceny case. There's a credit card used all over the place. There's a McDonald's, a credit card used. So he goes, gets the video, and he's looking at the video, and he's like, getting the perp use of the video. You know, McDonald's has like three registers, you know. So uh, late at night, there's only one open, right? And there's a lot of people after drinking. They're all waiting in line to get their Mickey D's, you know. So the detective's getting the video, and he sees. Is that the one on Houston? Uh, and, um I'm not sure exactly which one right. it was. I don't really remember the exact one, but there's three registers, so there's a line of people, and then there's this one guy standing at the fucking register that there's nobody on. 
for like 10 minutes as he's getting the video. Now he's getting the video because he recognizes the guy. It's this other detective. It's on his turnaround. He went out for a couple pops and he went to get something to eat. He's waiting online at the register. There ain't nobody at. For like 10 minutes of video, man. So the guy downloads the video. He starts making posters. He's like, here he is. He's hanging out. It's the detective. He, he had a couple of cocktails and he was waiting online for nobody to serve him. He uh, didn't realize it because uh, he was a little juiced up. But that was real fun. It was a good detective time. Detective couldn't even figure out that that register wasn't working. Right. That sounds like a Detective Pat story. Oh, yeah. I knew that area. There used to be a comedy club over there, the Laugh Lounge. And I used to perform there all the time. That was that was, uh, and then there was a um, a McDonald's in that corner that was pretty busy. But that's interesting, what? man. How they dump you in a house where yeah. it's going to be, uh, it's it's actually going to be better for you. It, it did work out. Made some, you know, again, same way I, I I managed a squad, the same way I did everywhere else, and I got along with my guys. You know, I was never the guy going out drinking on the weekends with guys or you play favorites. I kept everything fair. If I had an issue with a detective. You know, I, we pull aside and, and I try to work it out. You don't have to like me. I don't like you, but we got to get the work done, man. So we, mm -hmm. I would air it out. I was kind of a fixer that way. You know, every year I take the guys out, the whole squad, it, whether it's a holiday dinner. When I was in a 2-4, I used to get tickets to the Yankee Met games. I'd buy them for the whole squad. We'd go out for the afternoon, take the day off, have the borough covers. You know, just once in a while I do things like that to let the guys blow off the steam. And, uh, you know, and the 7th, I landed there, and it was just so busy. It was a great transition. And, uh, you know, we had one other case, and it was, it was I'd like to bring it up because it, it, it touches upon the gallows humor you have to have, where other people really wouldn't understand the things that you guys were referring to before. And it was a homicide case, and it, it dealt with the housing project in the 9th and the 7th at Mason Dixon line of Houston Street. And you, you almost want to feel bad for the, you know, the, the, you know, the guys involved, because what happened is one guy's brother from the 7th, um, the seventh guys from Wall go up into the ninth. They do a robbery of like this 14-year-old kid. They rob his jacket and uh, they go back to the seventh. So the kid goes home, tells his brother, hey, man, they robbed my jacket. And he, he knew the guys that robbed them. They lived down in the Wall houses. So he, uh, his brother gets a couple of his buddies together. Let's go get that jacket back, man. They robbed my little brother's jacket. So one of the guys says, I'll bring the gun. Okay, you bring the gun, man. <laughs> so the youngest of the four guys, you're going to carry the gun in case we get stopped. You're carrying the fucking gun. So they come down to the fourth, seventh, and they're looking for the guys, and they find them in a pizza shop. Now the guys clear out of the pizza shop, and we get video out in front of the street. It wasn't really clear video, uh, but you could see it's like two flocks of birds. There were like six kids from the seventh, and then the, the four guys that came down from the, from the ninth, and they're in the middle of the street, and they're going at it. And there's a little old man comes walking by, and he's using a cane. And then one of the one of the guys from um, the seventh who or like in the defensive mode, grabs the cane from the old man, starts winging it in the air like this. And we find out later, he's yelling, come on, come on, motherfuckers. He's yelling, let's go. So the older guy asked the young guy, hey. Which hey, team did the old man join? He didn't join anybody's no. team. He was, he's he just walking by and they back. just took his cane. <laughs> so the kid takes out the gun, hands it to the leader, the, the older crew from the, from the ninth, and he takes that, it's a revolver. And he's pointing it and he goes, click. Click. And as we find out later in the interviews, the guy's waving a cane. He's yelling, come on, your gun's got nothing. They got blanks. They got blanks. Click, click, bang. And now they all scatter and run. They all run into a, a little deli. And there's video, crystal clear video. All, all the six guys are in the video and they're all hanging out. And all of a sudden, the guy with the cane collapses. Uh, turns out he was shot and it, it pierced like his aortic uh, artery. They killed the old guy? No, no, no the no, old no. guy's outside. The, the guy waving the cane oh, okay. gets shot and they're all running now because they hear a shot and they're all hiding. Now they're inside looking out. Where are the guys with the gun? And one of the guys collapsed and it turns out he was shot in the chest and it pierces his aortic valve and he bled out. But the adrenaline, he ran in, you know, like a deer in the woods running, you know, he ran in and he collapsed. 
the, the we have the video now the door swings open and see old man comes in pushes his way in his grabs the back. cane peels it up and then walks out wow man. wow so the whole squad was like whoa like that's justice the guy got his cane back you know? <laughs> case closed yeah so, so <laughs> it was a, so we, we it was the grand larceny we get the guys identified cane. and unfortunately the guys who got shot were robbers you know but the family of the kid who now the older brother did the shooting they didn't want to make a report for robbery they didn't want to get involved they didn't want the guy charged with robbery I'm like listen your son's going to get charged with murder oh, yeah you know, so it turns out the younger son who brought the gun, he turns himself in with his uncle because now we got the Warren squad everybody. We're hitting all the locations. They're all known perps. We're hitting everywhere trying to get people. And he, he, the uncle turns him in and he gives up the story, you know, to... Uh, How old was he? He was, I think, 15. So he was there with his uncle and he, he was interviewed and he, and he gives up the story and... Uh, and it turns out, uh, you know, he's telling the detective, you know, like, okay, now I told you, when can I go home? You know, and he's like, yeah, in about 25 years, man. Oh, you're, in, you're involved in a murder here, man. You don't mm. realize you just brought a gun to a, to rob a guy, you know. So, you, you know, like I said, it's those those kind of cases that nothing good comes out of it. And the guys who went down, they were, you know, theoretically trying to do the right thing, trying to get his brother's Did they get back. charged with murder or manslaughter or what? No, they, they initially, the guy turned in, he was, he was cooperating. So he was charged with murder, but they were going to roll it back. Because he he was he didn't technically fire the gun. Right. Technically, it's felony murder still, but he. Uh, it's acting in concert, right. right? But the older brother fled. Man, he left. He was gone. He went up to like Connecticut. Lawrence was like on a hunt for that guy for uh, for quite some time up in Connecticut. But again, it, 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 serious case. But the dark humor that you got to laugh at stuff like that. Yeah, he's getting back. Yeah, the old man got his game back, man, and whoever, that was that was positive. Was c- catching the larcenies in that <laughs> in that squad. Yeah, but no phone calls on that one, closed. man. <laughs> that was all done. Forty nine. Nobody was calling on that one. That was no one uh, gave a shit about that. You one. mentioned uh, when we first started that you do a lot of work with Papa, and uh, I wanted to make sure that we we get that in. Sure. Uh, can you explain to our audience what Papa is? Papa is a, it's an acronym. It's an organization uh, that's called Police Organization Providing Peer Assistance, and it's a volunteer organization. It's a nonprofit, and it's really staffed by. Uh, MOS, former MOS, that are retired. It was started back in 1996 and basically created a helpline. So if uh, an MOS has an issue, they can call this helpline and it's confidential. It's just somebody to talk to. And it's the helpline is a 24-hour line and you can call anytime and it's a way of uh, talking to another cop that's a, a trained peer support officer. So you go through training. It takes about a year before you really go on, on, on the line itself to answer it. What does the training entail? The training entails like the first thing when you sign up, you go through an interview process to see if it if you will fit that. They do three levels. It's like interviewing for a job. It's not just like you're signing up and you're Do you get paid for doing it? No, no. It's completely volunteer. It's on your own time. And and the, and what the training involves is you go away for like a three-day weekend into like a commune somewhere. And you basically you can't leave. There's no drinking. It's like you're eating together. And There's no like, drinking? Shit, I'm not doing it. It's like, <laughs> it's like a group of like 30 or 40 peer support officers when they need to So f- this is real it. stuff we're talking It's real about stuff. Right it's the, the organization has about 280 peer support officers, but people rotate in and out. There's some that have done it for 10, 20 years. Some do it for a couple of years. And, you know, because it's a, it's a dark side too. It's, you're hearing a lot of dark stuff. So... Um, you know, people's lives change and they move on. So they're always looking for new peer support officers. So what happens is you go away, the initial part is to go away for three days. And you, you sit through training. It's like eight hours a day, nine hours a day. You You're think they take Mark and I? <laughs> Absolutely. They take everybody. <laughs> they need that comic relief out there. Man. They do a lot of role you playing. You want to volunteer, so Mark? A lot of role playing. So there's an office somewhere, <laughs> Papa's office. Papa's and in that office. office is a bunch of phones and people sit at those phones. And if. No. 
No. So what happens is everything's tied with technology. Was it used to be beepers? Believe me, when I start, I still have a beeper. We really don't use it anymore. But it was a beeper that you get a beeper, and then you'd call into the Papa hotline. That person who calls in would leave a message saying, "Hey, I, you know, whatever, I'd like to talk to somebody." And then the person who's on that hotline, you're on it from 11 a.m. to 11 a.m. the next day. So you get programmed. If somebody calls the hotline, it gets rooted to your cell phone. Hey, you just got a message. Someone call the hotline. So I call in and get the number, and then I would call that person and say, hey, I'm Jim. I'm a trained peer support officer. You know, it, I understand you called the Papa line. And then you go through a whole litany of, uh, of things to assure them that it's a non-department. It's supported by the department, but it's not connected to the department. It's totally confidential, and it's a way for They're someone. Just, you're just calling up to talk to somebody that's going to understand, right? Because you're talking to another cop. That's and the there's idea no stigma it. attached to it. Not at all. So that's the beauty. At this of it. point, the department doesn't even know, right? No, the department doesn't know, and that's that's the point that makes it effective over that period of time. So if I just go back a little bit, so it's a 24-hour hotline. So every day from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., there's another peer support officer that's online, and then there's a backup on call. Because the way it works is somebody can call up and they can talk. And most people call up that do call. It's just like a venting thing. They want to talk about it. But if you identify that there's a real need there, it could be a, you know, an alcohol issue. It could be a marital problem. It could be you know, a psychological issue that they're talking about. You try to identify it. Papa has over 120 clinicians in all different fields that are affiliated with us. So if that person wants to get some help, what we do is we set up a meet with them after we talk to them on the phone and we do a face-to-face in like a public place near Are these they, clinicians volunteers too? Some are volunteers, but others like you can go through like, okay, uh, their insurance. Oh, they'll, okay. they'll accept whatever insurance. So now you'll set up an appointment with them. So the idea is you let them vent to you to talk about what their issue is. You try to identify what their main issue is. And if they want to take it to the next level and see somebody, you meet them personally. And then you go through it in a personal meet in a, a public place you know, that's neutral. And then you get a little more detail from them. And let me ask you something, Jim. As as you know, there's been 10 suicides this yes. year of members of the service. Do members of the service know enough about PAPA that they could, is it publicized enough that they know this exists? Well, it is publicized. I mean, we we're, we work in conjunction. We're independent of the department, but the department even promotes and supports us for that very reason. Like the department has services, psychological services, uh, early intervention. They have a lot of things, but there's that stigma attached to it. If you go through the job, you, you don't think it's ever well. It's, it's not just a stigma; it's right. it's reality. Right. They, they do you, you know. Right. So, this organization was established in 1996 because of that, and as a result, it's it's helped a lot of people. Yeah. But it's it's not. I know some itself. of the people who it's helped. I've right. seen a lot of the people have gone to Papa. People, the them. cops are aware of it because I was mentioning to you earlier. I work in the police academy as an actor in the crisis intervention, and a lot of times when I'm doing my scene. The cops who respond, they're, they're, they're from the audience. They mm-hmm. pull them out. It's part of a scenario. They tell them what jo- it's a job. might not be what they're, like any other real job, it might not be what they're walking into, and then they have to evaluate it and discover, oh, this person appears to be suffering from some, you know, looks like they might want to commit suicide. And a lot of the times uh, they'll be like, we're going to call, uh, did you call Papa yet? So it, uh, they, right. a lot of cops are aware of Papa. No, it's it's a great organization that was you know devised because the department you know itself didn't really have that way for you to address it inside, and it's such a tragic thing because you know there's when you go through the training, and if I could just talk about that just real quick, it's like you go away for that two or three days, and you're you're not locked away, but you're there, and you're grooming with somebody. Reiterate, there's no drinking there. 
<laughs> There's no drinking. No. <laughs> Damn. So you, you go through. Had me. You got <laughs> psychologists. You're learning listening skills because that's yeah. the key. It's that you don't want to give advice. It's all about listening. Let per- people, you know, vent and talk about what's bothering them and try to identify what their issue is. So you go through all this training for it. And at the very end of the training, it was really a unique thing that they gave out because you you went into a room with everybody that was there at the end of the second or third day, and everyone got into a, uh, write down something. It was really it was kind of well, I don't want to say mystical, but it was it had that feeling. They try to put you in that chair or that you're on the other side of that phone. And they had everybody write down on a piece of paper a secret that you never told anybody mm-hmm. and put it in the box. And then you shake them up and everybody pulled the secret out and you got to read it. And if it was yours, you had to put it back. So you had to read someone else's secret. And the caveat was you could own your secret if you wanted to. And I thought, nobody's going to own No way you're going to hear a mm-hmm. thing. I ain't saying nothing. And a couple were read out. Nobody said anything. And all of a sudden somebody read out. One said, no, that's my secret. And then everybody owned up to that secret, something you never told anybody. And this is confidential, so it served a purpose here, here, mm-hmm. you're part of this organization. Mine would have been weird. <laughs> you create this book. I don't want to hear Mark's secret. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that many secrets. All we do is talk about our life. But I did hold on to this girl's shoes once. She asked me there. We used to go out dancing when we were kids, and she had these shoes. And um, I had a backpack. We were kids. So I put her shoes in my backpack. She must have forgot they were there. They was in my closet for years, man. Hmm. And I remember like every once in a while when I'm digging around, and I had a crush on her. So every once, I never threw those shoes out. And as a matter of fact, when I moved out of my living with my grandparents, whatever, I had to get rid of those shoes. They might have made one move with me <laughs> to our next location, but then I grew up. I had got my own place. But you think this that would have been you weird? Think that right? was worth tell that secret <laughs> of a Papa confession. <laughs> <laughs> if I would have said that story, how weird would it have been? There was no suicidal well, thoughts. It's all confidential, so you can't comment on it. It's all confidential. So that that was the point. It served. It puts you in that chair. It, <laughs> it tests your confidentiality and everybody's empathy because people got to respond to you. Say, hey, I'm you know I'm sorry that that happened to you, and you. And it really gave you that feeling now that hey man, when someone calls up, they're telling you something that's really intimate about themselves. Jim, let me let me you ask you something though. Papa, great, great organization. And uh, I mean, hope, you know, hopefully they'll save a lot of lives. I'm sure they have already saved a lot of lives. What is the department doing wrong that is causing 10 suicides a year? Well, you know, the, you know, there's psychologists that say they're trying to do something now because it is such an anomaly. Last year there were four suicides. And, you know, over the years it's between four and five that NYPD has uh, suffered. This year's 10 alone already. It's, it's, uh, it's very alarming. So... The job is trying to do something. It, it's in process now. They've actually just, they're creating a new uh, division, actually. It's, I think it's the Health and Wellness Division, where they're, where they're trying to model it after what uh, L- L- LAPD does. And they've been very successful. They've done it for a while. They have um, peer support officers, sort of like Papa, strewn throughout the department, hundreds of them. And then they have psychologists that are assigned to different geographical areas in uh, the city that people can go talk to. And, and literally, everybody talks to them. So it's there's no it's, it kind of avoids that stigma that hey uh, if you went and, hey Jim went to talk right, to the right. psychologist so I ain't working with him everybody does well so we it, we had said something about I think market recommended that everyone mandatorily has to go once or twice a year everybody well, to see uh, like a counselor it's such a complex issue and you know th- that's some of the things that LA does that yes that's what's happening but one of the key things I th- I think in my opinion again I this is just my opinion I'm not a spokesman for Papa or any of these charities but in my opinion is why it works so well it's because those clinicians are not directly tied to your duty status. Right. So if you go to a clinician, they don't have to say, oh man, this guy's got to be removed. They have such a high threshold about removing someone's firearms because they know how impactful that would be to somebody's career. So that doesn't happen unless that person's, you know, they determine it's they're on that edge where 
they may be able to go back and they may even say they have some issues that are psychological, but no, they can keep their firearm and their shield and they're, they're getting treatment. They're good to go. So, but they're trained because they are so affiliated with the department that they're out there within the department. So right. they understand they do ride alongs. They show up at, you know, precincts. So these psychologists and, and LA unfortunately just recently had one, but up until this recent suicide, they haven't had a suicide since 2017. Wow. So they're, they're, well, I mean, look at your situation. For example, you were going through a divorce and at the same time you were getting uh, the third degree yeah. pounded by the right. job. And meanwhile, you, you didn't do anything wrong. You were a great supervisor. And just because some lady, um, lost her jewelry. You didn't steal it, right? <laughs> a lot of times, I had a feeling like when you're getting those those calls in the squad, like, yeah, I didn't commit this crime, bro. Why right. are you making me feel like I committed the crime? You know, we're doing our best here. I'm trying my best. Well, hopefully, we'll catch this person. But in the meantime, it's like, dude, chill out, man. It's and like he did sure. a proper investigation. Totally, right. yeah. And they found a way. They always find a way to freaking got get you. And you talk about the. You know, the one thing that it happens to say right in the first right. part of the detective manual. <laughs> squad boss was the, the first thing. Gotcha. <laughs> it says the caveman should stop the fire. <laughs> in all fairness, it is the first thing that it says there. Yeah. <laughs> Don't carry the club on your shoulder as you But still, man, the pressure that comes from the job, and everybody talks about it, it's not the pressure from... It's, it's so much not the pressure from what you encounter dealing with perps or dealing with complainants. It's the pressure that comes from the job, even when you're trying to do the right thing. And it seems to me like the ones that the, the cops that do the right thing, it affects them more, obviously. And they're usually the targets because they're a little bit more active. Right. If you get these do nothings, they're never going to get under the spotlight. Like you're a squad boss. You, you get a, uh, a detective, an empty suit in your squad, and now you've got to constantly answer questions for this guy. Right. And you can't let them know that, listen, I, I'm having trouble reining this guy in because you're supposed to be the boss. That's my job, yeah. And that's your job. You know, Mark, I remember there was a detective that was going, I'd fucking tell them at Comstat. <laughs> so the squad commander goes, you're coming to the next Comstat. <laughs> he brought him there. He fucking turned white. He was like, I can't believe the shit you guys have to go through. I used to sit right? in at all of them because yeah. I used to work for Pulaski. I was in the training unit. I used to coordinate the homicide course and do all the in-service training for the detectives. I did that the last couple of years I was on the job. And part of our thing was we used to have to go to Comstat. And we used to sit in the back. Like, I don't know why we were there, but... Um, and we used to take notes. It gets nasty sometimes, right? Oh, right. it was bad. It was well, brutal. With that, with that case from the 19th, I, I got to read it. There was no discipline that came out of it. Other being transferred, that you know, I'm assuming that's why it was from that case. But it never came down. And even the official, you know, when I got... Uh, you know, the inspections captain that did his final report, uh, it was just something about, like, my memo book wasn't up to speed. It was what something silly, but yeah. there was no, I never got a CD. I got nothing out of it other than transferred, and, you know, they told them to put the hit on the, the evaluation, which they didn't do. But it's Thankfully, also, some good bosses obviously, you're level-headed. A lot of it come, could come from your background in, in Taekwondo or you're driving around in the, in the bullet, Stephen Queen's car. <laughs> but my point is this. My point is that you could handle it. You were tougher than the average person. You know what I'm saying? He because had mental of your toughness. Yeah. yeah, he had mental toughness. Well, obviously, he's a squad boss, and that's how he got there. But if you get somebody who's a little bit weaker, man, that kind of stuff, it adds up. And now all of a sudden you're going through a, uh, a divorce, your family, you're losing your family, plus your other families on top of your back. They're abusing you. That's what 
I think the job needs to lay off a little bit with this stuff. Yeah, we're not they, uh, we're not the really, ones out there committing the crimes, him, man. man. Well, I, I I looked at when I look back and I went through the Papa training. One of the things we find out, and even we go through peer support training twice a year, reannual training. So no and, alcohol at those. No, either. no alcohol. Damn, at those. And at the end of those, you do these self care meetings. What kind of racket is this? Well, you, we're not signing up. <laughs> where you meet with the peer support, and it's about self care. You break it into groups, and you talk about, hey, what's going on? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Just those things you have to identify because self care is really. You know what's important. funny is that we're talking about this the drinking thing, but uh, you know, like a lot of cops from the you know like just say before the 80s the 70s those guys were big boozers man yeah. do you think because i know for a fact now the job is probably has half those boozers boozers maybe less do you think that's a, 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 as an effect because people aren't draining their um their sorrows and their worries in alcohol anymore that well, they're actually trying to deal with this that they're having a lot no, of problems that's- that's what I was just referring to. If you don't have those self-care outlets, like I was fortunate when I look back and I went through the training, wow, I had Taekwondo was an outlet, you know, I was always active in sports. I, you know, I other hobbies, whether it's a fish tank or my bullet or a motorcycle. And I had family. my sons. Yeah. I was always involved. You got a in fish my, tank too? Yeah, I do. I can <laughs> salt, how big is it? The reef aquarium. So, oh, that's a lot of work. No, not really. If you do salt water, salt water, I have reef, crabs, shrimp, fish, coral, but but those—that's the self-care, man. Yeah. That's the—that's what I'm talking about. And if you don't have that, you self-medicate, and that's where it becomes the alcohol becomes a problem because mm. now, you know, you'll talk to people, they'll call up to have an issue, and you have to be very direct. And you know, some of the training we went through is you're never, you know, you by asking someone, "Hey, are you going to hurt yourself?" You don't want to ask that question. You want to ask outright. Have you ever thought about killing yourself? Because you're never going to give someone the idea. Oh, I didn't think of that. That never has happened. Right. But if you say, "Hey, you're going to hurt yourself," they go, "No, I'm going to kill myself. I ain't going to hurt myself." So you may not get the real answer. And then if you drink, people, you know, that develop drinking problems, you know, we have to ask specific questions like, "Hey, do you drink? What was the last drink you had?" Mm-hmm. Well, I drank last night. Do you drink a lot? No. Well, how much you have? Well, Ten beers. Mm-hmm. You know. To them, it's not a lot. They drink 10 beers right, every day. Right. They think that's not a lot. Yeah, but I, when, I, you know, I, I always go to the World yeah. Trade Center physical, and you can't tell them that you on the weekend you drink two right. bottles of wine because mm-hmm. they're going to sign you up for AA, well, you know? Like, right. <laughs> well, it's, it's all about that self-care. That's what I said. Yeah. I was lucky when I went through the training. I went, wow, I had you, these outlets a lot of the that calls that, The initial calls that come through, uh, somebody's intoxicated? Again, uh, if, you can't say right. Yeah, it's, it. that's all confidential stuff. But it's you know the calls could be anywhere. Just some venting about that the was job. Interesting. To, the Papa to, thing was interesting, but guess what? You're not done because you also do something else that's great. Yes. You <laughs> also have another place. I don't know. You, I think I guess you volunteer there as well. We're not going to mention the name of this uh, foundation, but tell us about the work that you do there. Well, I, I got into that when I was in the, one of the squads, actually. Uh, I became a squad commander of, of one of the Manhattan commands, and, uh, uh, and since this charity was involved, located in that command, I, I started spending time there. I'm like, wow, because uh, the precinct did a lot for it. It was a charity that helps families that brought a child to New York City for treatment of rare pediatric cancers. So, you know, I went there, I visited, and I was knocked out how warm it was. So mm-hmm. I decided to become a volunteer. And every night there's a different volunteer team that comes in and helps serve dinner to the families. The families are usually in a hospital all day. They come back with the kids at night, and you do a serving dinner and do like a nightly activity. So every night there's a different volunteer team. So I did that for like five years on uh, He's like a good th- guy. Thursday well, nights. No, no, it's beautiful, man. And then what the charity would do, they'd ask the volunteers to come help out because there's only about 50, 60 employees and they have these big fundraisers. They have the volunteers to come to their fundraisers and like sign people in and be like mm-hmm. the legs, arms and legs of it. And then I realized, hey, I could do this, man. I, I know guys that own restaurants and bars. I love music. I know guys that did bands. So I'd go to a, a restaurant on the west side, a bar, and go, listen, what's a dark day for you? Uh, Monday suck, okay? Well, on Monday... 
let's get one of the bands to come back in. We get them to donate their time. We go to your liquor distributor, give them the 501c3 letter, and say, hey, we're going to you know, donate liquor for 150 people. We charge 50 bucks, and we raise 10 grand. I walk in with 10 grand the next night to the charity. Here you go. Here, I was doing this on and off as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And there was a few other things I was doing to help them raise money, and it was like, this is great, you know? And the CEO at the time suggested, hey, well, when you're ready to retire, man, you know, maybe I'll find a spot for you here. So I got to go on a comp stat, and I'm at that podium, right? And I'm talking, and when I'm getting pulled up there, I politely say in a nice way, hey, when you're done yelling at me, I wouldn't say that, of course, but <laughs> when you're done yelling at me, would you mind if I talk about this charity I'm involved with? And they let me. And then from that point, I would uh, say, hey, you know, the combined federal municipal campaigns out there, it's called New York City Gives now. You could donate through payroll deduction to it. If you want to, I'll be outside, I'll give you the forms. So I started getting guys to do that, and... In over five years of doing it, I got over a thousand people to donate. See, to that's the where the wow. job is interesting too, because even though you're getting your ass handed to you at Comstat, when the meeting's over, you, it's not the end of the world. Right. You still cops still come up to you. The other bosses will still talk to you. It's just listen, but it's your turn right now. You, somebody's got to get their ass handed to them right. every week. <laughs> Today was your turn, so well, it's not the end of the world. It got to the point where I was like looking forward to go to the podium which was the death sentence i'm like wait a minute that's when it's time to leave because i was mm-hmm. like they actually started bringing me down to other comp stats to open it up so brooklyn north would be up and hey let's hear from lieutenant malloy first because you were five good minutes. at it and yeah, I, yeah. but i talk about you know giving to charity and and that burroughs loved it because i was burning the clock for five minutes right. you know you're burning the clock but, but you're also letting them know people, that there's more to the job see right. one of the things that i always had a problem with with the, with the comp stat was because there wasn't any positive coming out of there right. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay, if somebody's going to get raked over the coals a little bit, whatever, can we uh, figure out a bookend it with maybe some positive stuff? But that's what you did. Right. And cops are so generous. Once we brought it up and the outpouring, man, guys would give a dollar, guys would give 25 bucks. It was unbelievable, the outpouring. And... You know, so you work for this foundation now? Or no, I do, yeah. No, I, I almost four and a half years ago I retired because, I, like I said, I'm going to the podium, wanting to go there, and I knew it was time to go. And I didn't leave disgruntled. Like I said, I, I worked five years after that other thing. But you're thing, working and I for it. this place. Right? It's not volunteering. I was, yeah. No, I, I went, they created a spot for me, and now I'm working there you're helping them raise money. Right? I'm so a you figured out, all right, good. You finally yeah. know how to make money now. Sure. <laughs> you know, from, the, from the seventh squad, I went to the ninth, and, that, and that's, a, that's a kind of a funny story because the CEO at the time was this guy, Pete Venice. Great guy. I got along great with him. And uh, Pete was, uh, get, you know, uh, the ninth opened up, and that's a promotion command. You go to the ninth from a DI, you can make inspector out of it. Uh, from the seventh as a DI, you can make inspector out of the ninth. So I got along great when I remember him coming up to the squad and he goes, hey, Jim, man, I got, at this time, I got like 23 years on. And he's like, hey, Jim, uh, I'm going to the ninth, man. Would you like to come be my squad commander? And I'm like, man, Pete, oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm super again. comfortable here, man. I got, I know all the guys. He's working mm-hmm. well. I got 23. I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, man, no you problem. Still didn't get the hand. He's I, not asking. He was he's it. telling so me, you're coming the, with me. The next day, I get called down to the uh, Manhattan Detective Chief's office. Says Chief Aubrey, good guy, and uh, he's really good friends with, with Pete Venice. So I'm sitting in his office, and he goes, "You see that picture over there? That's me and Pete Venice. That's me and Pete Venice over in that picture. That's me, Pete Venice. He goes, you got to do me a favor, Jim. You got to come to the ninth. Work for Pete Venice. Yeah. Say whatever you need, Chief. And then I'm in the ninth precinct. See, I just said that. <laughs> I'm not asking you. It's it's like yeah. it's like being polite, but it's yeah, like, hey, it listen, and you're gonna come and work with us. It was fine. Wasn't bad though, right? No, it was good. It, it's like, like you were a made was, man. Hey, I was on this side of the uh, you know the Mason Dixon line. Now I'm like pushing everything back down to the side. Remember the scene you know? on the back of the boat. <laughs> When he's like telling him because you're gonna work for no, you don't understand. You're working for me now. Forget about left. Right, you right. work under me, directly under me. No, it's okay. But Pete Venice is a great guy, excellent commander, uh, precinct commander, and I, I'm not even sure where he is at this point. I've lost contact with him since I've been out almost five years. But uh, 
Yeah, it was good. It was good working tonight. It was just starting all over again. You don't want, you know. No, you, you never want to start, start all over again. You know. Yeah, because you finally get comfortable in the place. You figure everything out. It's all working nice in the system, and then it's like owning a company in a way. You know, you built up this company, and now you got to break. It. They got to go start again somewhere. You know, else. and and when I when I told the chief, I decided I was going to retire. I went in. I actually talked to you know the borough commander first, and then I went down to the chief of detectives. But you know, they, they chief Aubrey was like, "Hey, you sure you want to go?" Like, Hey, the Midtown South's opening up. I could use you there. Oh, <laughs> like, God, I don't want to start over in another big political squad. Oh, you know, yeah. No, no. My Who decision was, the was made. for detectives when you retired? Uh, Boyce. Oh, Boyce. Okay. Yeah. And he had left Manhattan detectives before Aubrey, so he was familiar with me because I worked for him. In, uh, he came from the Bronx to Manhattan. and then uh, Cream always rises to the top on the job, man. Doesn't... You know, takes but he had a rough go of it, man. He yeah, listen, tough, he caught his know? little spanking yeah. for yeah, no reason it. at all. Everybody that's gets it. Yeah. You know what it's like? It's almost like a beat-in. You know, can you take can you take the beating before you get in? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Everybody's yeah. got to get it, and then you become one of the boys. Look, you step in front of everybody. Look at him. You get but, your but it's a shame when you get a beating when you didn't do anything wrong. You know, the only time it happens to you is if you're going to step up and you're going to try to make something out of yourself. Yeah. You know, they got to prove. Okay, this guy can take it. It all worked out. Like I said, I wasn't. I didn't run. You know, like I said, I've seen a lot of squad commanders at the time that, you know. They get through that and they get transferred and then they cut their overtime and they're like, I'm leaving. And then they end up coming back a year later because they don't have a plan. You right, know, right, they leave right. the job, you just go leave. work somewhere, and then they realize, holy cow, man. I, I kinda, yeah, there's a lot of hard. different ways to think about it, but the admirable thing to do is you leave on your own terms. Yeah. And yeah. It, led me, it led me to this charity, you know, and, they, and they're doing great work. And then, to be honest with you, this charity led me back to Papa. I knew all mm-hmm. about Papa, uh, but I, you know, I didn't get involved with it. And then I had a volunteer buddy of mine, uh, not to be too dark, but he was a firefighter and he's prolific volunteer at this organization and he ended up taking his own life and oh, i was like gosh. wow man i was around this guy every thursday and like he you know he had a relationship that ended and he it turns out he had a 9-11 illness he had a lot of stuff going on in his life and and he ended up taking his life and i was like wow i, I can't how did i see that you know and then i went through this training and i was like wow that's you know he, jim he that's the, signs, the thing you know? that um people always uh harp on or, or get upset about when they go to the cops and they said did you notice he had a problem and the cops say yeah then why the fuck didn't you say right. something? You know what I mean? Like there's that st- stigma of being a rat. No, you're not ratting on right. someone that, that may help. commit suicide. Right. He yeah, needs but, help. Yeah. I don't know. It's like... There's, there's an equation. No, those, like, doesn't that always right. happen? No, it, they it's... Go and say, yeah. the but some like, people oh, yeah, can handle more than other people. Right. So a lot of people are more sensitive than others. And then, I don't know, it, who knows, man? Well, I, I've been around people that committed suicide and... and yeah, you never. I didn't know. You know, I'm I'm not a psychologist. You know, and I'm not a psychologist, obviously, with that. And but I, I go through the peer support training, and you you talk to psychologists. They give out an equation. You know, equation is chronic pain uh, for suicide. Chronic pain it could be emotional or physical, uh, combined with hopelessness that that chronic pain's never going to get better. And then the the triggering factor is that person sustains some sort of loss. At that time, that's when they think there's no other option. So this is going to make it end. Chronic, chronic pain. pain. Could be you broke your relationship. You could be sick. Mm-hmm. It's not getting better. That hopelessness that it's never getting better, and then you just suffered a loss. You could have lost your job. You could have lost a family member. You could have lost a relationship, and then that triggers it. Like that's the way out. Yeah. And that's that's the elusive thing. And to summarize it, you know, that's what they say in the training. That's that, how do you identify that? It's really hard to do. It's not, you know, depression. Hey, the Yankees lost. I'm depressed. Everybody gets depressed <laughs> from time to time, but it's that those that that tragic combination and with police officers when you talk to somebody it's they have that lethality ready so if that thought happens it's on their hip right. because you, know, you do that type of work and now it's become almost second nature listening to people do you get a lot of like friends and stuff like that that are calling you up and like oh, this 
fucking guy again. <laughs> no, <laughs> Before no. you come to the phone. I called him, I said, Jim, you didn't pay your bar bill. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, because once, once people, you, you have to have a good ear. Right. You know, that's no. a great thing, man. Well, the, you know, the job is trying to do something because after the, the ninth suicide, actually in September, they created that uh, health and wellness unit. But the idea is to model it after L.A. Um, it's unfunded yet. They apply, you know, they, they put it to the city council. It's a bill pending that they want to fund it. And the idea would be to create its own peer support network mm-hmm. of cops, like 300 to 600 cops throughout the city. And then they create these zones of I have like 58 psychologists with two mm. social workers and a cop assigned that are going to every precinct yeah. and they're, they're talking. So everybody, so it kind of, they the should have, to get they should take that. one person out of every freaking inspection unit and make them work a volunteer there. And they rotate at least one. So this way they can see what the freaking what they're dealing, you know, what they what they're selling. But you know, the, the sad the part is, it, you know, it's part of the problem is the job. So to be part of the solution is hard. At the end of the day, when it's implemented, it's it's going to be crucial to see if, like in LA, are they tied to the duty status? Because right, guys right, are not right. going to want to come forward still. I think if they're they going to have to move gonna, away with that. Know. My recommendation was that everybody should be assigned a therapist or a clinician as soon as they get on the job. The way that you're assigned the district surgeon. So there's no stigma, and you have to go there. When you go to the range, on the way back, half the day should be the range, and the other half of the day should be going to find your clinician wherever they are. And then when you, once you're there, if you want to talk to them a little bit more, you could set up another appointment privately. If you only want to see them the once a year, but I'm going to people go, what are you doing tomorrow? I got to go see the shrink. It, it will be like a normal right, thing because right. everybody's got to do it. Exactly. That, yeah. was, my, that was my suggestion. I know it would be costly. I think it would be costly, but listen... If it's going to save lives, and uh, you know, and you could also have the volunteer, uh, the volunteers, like like what you were doing, what you were mentioning, those groups, those support groups, also working, to you know, always have people who are volunteering. That volunteering thing is, is a really special thing that you do, and it takes a, a strong person to do that. Man, I've always, uh, I've been, you know, I wanted to get involved in some type of volunteering, um, and I'm hoping that I get the time to do that sometime soon but I, I know that's got to be an incredible feeling right no it is it's especially you know you're on that peer line and like i said i it's personal to me from this aspect of you know i've been involved with the job for so long but it was it was really only my last two years that i got involved with papa you know and, and i always knew the organization was there and then once you got involved you, you create a real kinship with the group you go through that initial training with you know so you're on the line and, and then you're broken into teams you know, so every team has a week block. So two people are on each day, you know, and that rotates around probably about every five weeks. There's mm-hmm. enough of us. So you're only doing it once every five weeks. So it doesn't take a lot of your time, but you know, some days you won't get any calls. Some days you could get five, six calls. It all, mm-hmm. it all depends. It all varies on what goes on, you know. How but, about what kind of effect do the, does fielding those calls have on you? Well, that's the important part of going back for that semi-annual training because it's self-care. You gotta, you gotta be aware. Like, listen, if you take a dark call and you're like, wow, that's you know, you're sitting across from someone that's telling you some really intimate things that yeah. are really dark and you're like, okay, let's get you some, you want some help. Yeah, that's we not easy you. either, man. No. You know, so it takes its soul. So you have to have that self-care. You have to have, oh, I'm going to go take care of myself today. What am I going to do? I'm going to go, you know, take a ride on my bike or I'm going to work on my fish tank or do Taekwondo. Right, or right. Someone to talk to or you go to the peer support group and then we break off at the end and go, hey, what are you doing? What, what's going on with you? And you get to tell, hey, this is what's going on. And you get to vent it out. God bless and you. you on each God other. bless you. I, it's tough, man. It's tough because I'm like a happy-go-lucky guy. You know what I'm saying? I like to laugh and joke around all freaking day. 
And then whenever I come across somebody, and I describe it a lot of times, it's like energy-wise. They're always, talk, you know, everything they talk about is bringing you down. And yeah, I'm not yeah. talking about depressive no, stuff, right. but it's just, and I'm like, I got to stay away from this person. And then, then there's a lot of stuff that you read online about cutting yourself off. What are you really cutting yourself off from? Are you containing yourself so you're always around these happy people, joyous people, that nothing superficial is happening? Or do you have really com real conversations with people? That's what, that's what it's about. You know, some people drain you, though. There are people who drain you. <laughs> That's they for really sure. Are, man. That's they got not, they well, you stay away from negative influences a lot of time, right? You yeah, know? This guy's diving right in. You know, this guy goes in head first. Yeah. He's there to help. God bless you, man. You know, like I always tell people, a lot of people get on the job because they want to help people. I wasn't one of them. <laughs> I wanted to get that parking plaque. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's great. Where are we with time, Andrew? We're we're about there. Wow. So what do we learn, man? Each one of these episodes are um, they're so interesting and fascinating for and because we're meeting people that are you know not not only were they great cops but they also uh, they also doing stuff outside of the job after retirement and uh, what you're doing is just remarkable, man. Oh, thank you. You know, uh, and anybody who's out there who's on the job, a member of the service. Uh, whether you're on NYPD or not, you, um, would you mind giving out your whole number? <laughs> if you have a problem, any magnitude at all. Is this Malloy from Papa? <laughs> Could I borrow your car? <laughs> <laughs> and while we're I at like it, that car. Could I get the jacket too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got a hot day. <laughs> Do you let your kids use the car? How yeah. old are your kids? I have an 18 year old. Yeah, I've let them drive. Yeah? yeah? Yeah, sure. Oh, that's great. You're a yeah. great dad. Yeah. Uh huh. That's great. But you sitting next to him or you just... Well, when he, he, I've offered it to him, he's like, ooh, but he's driven it with me in it. Yeah, he felt comfortable that way. Yeah, that's awesome, man. <laughs> that's cool. And it's, uh, I would imagine, what does it have, the, the flippers for the gears? It's no, a, no, it's got the, uh, it's a six-speed, yeah. Oh, it's a, uh, oh, well, it's it's a, a manual? Oh, yeah, manual really? transmission. Really? Yeah, ah, absolutely. God bless you, man. Yeah, I didn't absolutely. think they made those anymore. Yeah, well, for this one, they did, yeah. Oh, man, wow. that's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, can you leave a whole shot for us before <laughs> when you leave? That would be great. I'd love to see that. Do you do any racing with it? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. But it can. It has that ability to like split rocking, go up, and you can drive it around. Does it have a launch on it? No, no. No, no launch on it? No. Because I, I got into watching a lot of these shows on, on TV uh, or watching just drag races. I'm fascinated. I don't know shit about cars, but I love watching drag racing. And a lot of these cars have the launch on it now. Mm. You just set it up, whatever configure. I don't know how to use it, but you just press the launch, and it kind of sort of off. takes off for you. You can mess it up, though. Right, I'm sure. A lot of people blame the launch after they lose. <laughs> but. Well, Bill, uh, this has been an incredible episode. I'm actually, my heart feels good after this I episode. Just, I just want to say a couple of things. I worked with uh, with Jim when he first came to the 2-4. He was in my anti-crime team. Great cop. You know, and unfortunately, all the great cops I had outranked me near the end of my career. They all made lieutenant. One of them, Dennis DeQuattro, made chief. You know, so I had all these great cops that worked with me. But he, he was uh, true to himself, and he stood up you know, when other people would have crumbled, and I admired that about him, you know. Well, thanks, and Billy. you see on this job, even we mentioned D.I. Connell, his, you know, he, she stood up yeah. to the powers that be, mm -hmm. and they tortured the shit out of her, too. You know Admirable what I mean? Honorable people. So that's no, what so, some of the best. I survived that because I yeah. had a lot of support from those guys. Right, but a lot so, of honorable people yeah, on the job. They're, they're total, that's, that was one of my points is that you see, we, this is our 39th episode. Mm hmm. The cops we've had on here have been incredible people. Not just incredible cops, but incredible people. That's why the podcast works. Yeah. You know, the, the people that we were introducing 
uh, to our audience are just phenomenal yeah. people. And this one, this one's like right at the top. It just takes the cake. The amount of hours that you did, you did volunteering, even when you were going through your own stuff, volunteering, and the fact that you're working with the other people now and, and you're doing wonderful things there, man. It's just extraordinary. Man, you got to feel really, really good. That's why you don't need to drink and all this stuff because you, you feel good. But he still does drink heavily. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. I doubt it. No, no, no. Like that, Not when he's involved no, with the martial arts. There's a discipline there. Look, there's a time for everything. That's right. You know? Moderation. Yeah, everything moderation, in moderation. Everything in moderation. Absolutely. Yeah, man, you know? Tonight I'm going to get moderated. <laughs> well, on behalf Always of the comedian, <laughs> on behalf of uh, Police Off the Cuff, man, thanks well, for thanks coming. Thanks for having through, me. James. Appreciate hey, we we got to take a picture. We didn't take. Yeah, the yeah, we got to take yeah. a picture. Well, thanks thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks, was Bill. Excellent. Any parting words? Nah, I just you know every time we do this show, I'm just uh, over the moon, man. Yeah, I'm honored, man. Thanks again. Like I mentioned at the top of uh, uh, the first part of this podcast, how. How overwhelmed, how thrilled I am with the positive feedback and the kind words that we get. Uh, keep them coming, man. It makes me feel better. This way I don't have to call Papa. <laughs> <laughs> All right, peace out. Peace. <laughs>